Welcome to the LTC University Podcast, empowering and educating across the great state of South Carolina. Here we go. Welcome to the LTC University Podcast. My name is Jamie Preston, and I'm your host. And today we have a very special guest. We have Christopher Johnson. He is lead chaplain at Agape Hospice. He's also been a youth minister for five years, and now for the last 10 years, he's been a chaplain. Uh, for hospice and uh, welcome Christopher Johnson. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Yeah, let's talk about chaplaincy. I think people automatically assume, I know I did the first time I heard the word chaplain, I just assumed it's a pastor and it's much different than that. And uh, talk about what chaplaincy really is. Yeah, I mean, there's there are different types of chaplains. There are military chaplains, which are very much pastors for their their groups inside the United States mil- military, but then for the rest of us, we're chaplains in healthcare, which means we specialize and we're trained in a healthcare environment, which has its 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 idiosyncrasies. Let's just say, yeah, absolutely, and it's it is way different. How did you become a chaplain? So I was actually going to grad school to become a social worker, and a friend of mine's wife called me, who knew me from working in a church, and asked me if I would be interested in helping her. And so I went and I saw patients for a couple days and I really enjoyed that. And I went home that night and I just, I played Bible bingo. I just opened the scriptures and there's a part where Jesus is like, just come follow me. And I'm like, well, short of him just showing up and telling me what to do, I felt like that was probably the next closest thing. So I finished that semester and then from there on out, I was just a chaplain. I was changed my whole master's program toward um, pastoral theology in order to be a chaplain. It is so necessary, especially in the world of hospice and, you know, working with grieving families and, uh, you know, patients that they're at the last part of their life. Um, it's such a necessary role that needs to be played. So what is a typical visit like for a chaplain when you're going to see a patient? Um, I know they vary. It depends on the person. Uh, but what's what's a visit like when you go and make a visit? Well, I think that it depends whether it's a first time visit, you know, one of the things in, in hospice in particular is your first time visit, these people are so overwhelmed. They've just recently gotten news that you know they're on their end-of-life care. They've met five different people before you ever walk in the door. So part of that is just establishing a measure of trust between you and the family. And that's, I mean, that's the trickiest part. And depending on where you are, and how old really the person on the other end is can really reflect on how you interact with them as a chaplain. I know that when I have older patients, a lot of times they see me very much in that pastor's role. They have expectations. Um, they're looking for someone to read the scriptures to them and pray with them and to offer their testimony of faith to. Whereas the younger they get, the less they look for that. In fact, there are some people where you almost have to bury the lead as far as the spirituality part. So I had one gentleman who I, this is a true story, it's God is my witness. He um, was not that religious at all, but he wanted a chaplain because he wanted a companion. So I would go to his house every two weeks to watch The Price is Right with him. Like that was what we did. And he would give me his life reviews in between the commercial breaks. But you weren't allowed to talk while the actual show was on. Wow. (laughs) So every visit is definitely unique. Every person is definitely unique. Well, and the more relaxed people get around you, the more they start dropping 
kind of their their shields and their walls, and they start really opening up. Like even this gentleman, I finally learned about his religious tradition. I learned why he wasn't all that religious. I learned about his military background, and it was it was actually incredible because by the time he passed away, I ended up doing his funeral. And his wife said that you're the only religious person that he'd ever met that didn't expect anything from him. And to me, that's what that's why I love hospice chaplaincy is that there's no expectation. You're just there with a person. So I think a lot of people, you know, they, they think chaplain, they automatically think Christian. And I know you guys, you work with different faith backgrounds and you honestly, you're there and you meet them where they're at and where their faith journey's taking them. So what is that like? Well, depending on where you are in a region, you tend to reflect that region. So in rural counties, you're still very much a Christian sort of oriented chaplaincy because that's what the majority of the people are. But our chaplains train to have backgrounds in multi-faith disciplines. They're, They're trained to be able to help a client regardless of what their faith tradition is. And in my case, my actual undergraduate is in comparative religion. I have a master's, which is specifically theologically oriented, but I studied the other religions. And there's been several times, actually, one of my friends came up to speak at a conference we had, and he's an imam down in central Florida. And it's, it's interesting because one of the, the things that occurs is people of other faiths sometimes will prejudge you as a chaplain, expecting you to come in there and convert them. And I, I always laugh at him. I'm like, I, I probably even need a more conversion than they are. So it's probably better if we just like stay with whatever their their faith tradition is. Right. And and that's got to be challenging. I think for some people that's pretty tough. And I think you definitely have walls that are built up when they hear that chaplain's coming. And they, you know, sometimes they don't want a chaplain at all. And that's fine if that's their, their choices. But why Why would somebody need a chaplain at the end of life? Um, a kind lot of, a of it has... question, but... No, no, yeah. it's, it's a legitimate question because there are people that ask me that who I visit sometimes. And a lot of it has to do with anxiety. Um, people are dealing with various feelings that arise and they're not always comfortable talking to like a nurse about it or a social worker, but they're still dealing with this underlying level of anxiety. And so a chaplain can be very good at sort of cutting through that. At our hospice house, there was a night where I came in and there was a Muslim patient. And he was not that interested in chaplaincy, but he, he met with me one time. And when I opened the door, I said, "Assalamu alaikum, brother. As soon as I said that, they were like, you could watch the walls just tumble down. And he was super talkative. But it wasn't about religion. He was talkative because he was scared. You know, we always... um talk about being born, but we never talk about dying or what that process is like. So people have a lot of questions like, will this be painful? Or what will I go through? Or what have you seen before? And I think chaplains are unique in how we can deal with that because part of what we do is offer hope. And I think there's that thought of what comes next. You know, what am I facing? You know, there's, there's, we, we only speculate, you know, we only know what you know what we believe as far as like the bible or whatever faith system we come from how do you explain that to people you know well one of the things i do is i I keep up to date for the most part on most of the trends in faith traditions but the other thing i do is i try to look for commonalities 
So whether you're a Christian or a Buddhist or a Muslim, I look for like, this sounds funny, but like meditation techniques, things that are actual skills that we can give to clients. So if a, if a client can say breathe, then I might teach them to like watch their breath or give them a prayer that's timed to the rhythm of their breathing to calm them down when they're scared. Or I have a patient recently I visited who had COPD, so she can't follow her breath. So I gave her a visualization where she's like a willow tree blowing in the wind. And that when she uses that, it helps calm her down. And it's a spiritual technique that we've had for, oh, you know, a few thousand years. But you're kind of spinning it in a way that helps these people just kind of come to terms with where they are in space. But we can't take it away. And I even tell people that, you know, it's like I can't take away where you're going through. But what I can promise you is that you don't have to go through it by yourself. So tell me this, as far as being a hospice chaplain, do you just provide your services for the patient? Oh, no, 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 no. In fact, I often tell people that um, when Jesus was on the cross, he wasn't the person having the bad day. His mom had to watch it and just trust that it was all going to work out. And so oftentimes our patients are in a better place emotionally than their, their children or their spouses. Um, so being there for them and helping them through that moment and offering them companionship is super important just so that they know, hey, listen, this thing is like tides. You're going to get hit with grief one second and the next second you're going to be okay. And then all of a sudden you're going to be crying and you're not sure why. And just letting them know that this is a safe space for you to be able to do that and explore your feelings yeah. is very important. Obviously with hospice, you have you have a grief counselor that's involved, but you also have a chaplain. What do you, what do you see the differences are between counseling and chaplaincy? Um, counselors have to, they have very clear rules and regulations about what they can share and what they, what they do. And it's important not to separate those two too much and that the chaplain should always keep the bereavement coordinator kind of up to date. I wouldn't reveal what was said to you in privacy, but I might say, Hey, miss, so-and-so is very tearful today or she's remembering some things that have caused emotions and let my bereavement coordinator know and let them take sort of the long-term okay these are the clinical things they take kind of a long-term view where sometimes my job is just to help the patient come to terms with those feelings but you should always tag team like i always i spend more time with the staff than i spend with almost anybody else yeah, and that, I mean, that team approach to knowing and being able to serve somebody the best, you know, that you can um, really ties in there and, and, and it's really necessary to be able to help a family. Well, I think you can take it another step, too. The other thing that chaplains should do, our chaplains do do, is um, reach out to the community resource. If um, I just had a client recently who was very active in his Episcopal church. Um, his family gave me permission. I reached out to his clergy. We staggered our visits so that he was constantly getting visits from either myself, his priest, his associate priest. In fact, his last four days here, the priest and I timed a visit so we showed up at the same time for the family so that we could sort of be there for <laughs> this massive group of people. And it's, it's, it's a beautiful thing when you can do that. When you can work hand-in-hand hand with the community in order to keep people plugged into their their own faith communities, that's that's the most beautiful thing. Yeah. So so you obviously you're definitely working with the community, working with local clergy and pastors. 
let's say you come to a house and it's your first visit and you go in and they are of a different faith, but they really don't, you know, how do you, how do you work with that? Um, you get permission first off, you know, you can't ever reveal anything that's not given you, but if they'll give you permission, like I've reached out to local imams and to the rabbi and just let them know, Hey, this is who's under our care. Um, I think that they'd benefit from your presence or they've requested your presence is often the case. And how can I help you in understanding that you're the liaison at that point? I always, I compare chaplaincy to being deacons more than being pastors. You're going out into the community. And so that, if that means that a, a Jewish client needs a rabbi or maybe hasn't darkened the door of the synagogue in two decades, if they're open for me going out and reaching out for them, I'd love to do it. And to be honest, it's most pastors are super into somebody coming to help them. Hey, I'm trying to do this. People are sensitive to that. I think what they're sometimes afraid of is that we're trying to like almost sheep steal. Like as if we're interested in being this person's sole spiritual guide. And that's not what we're trying to do at all. Yeah. Yeah, you really, you know, especially if they don't have that at all. And a lot of people nowadays, I mean, 10 years ago, it was different than it is now. Um, a lot of people today don't have a faith background. They've never, some people have never set foot in a church before. What's interesting about that statistic, I did a class with our chaplains, is while attendance in spiritual programming has gone down, prayer has stayed the same and in some cases actually increased. So giving people a framework to put those emotions in place is so important. I have a number of patients. I cannot tell you the number of people who, when I first get there, they open with, I haven't been to church in a long time. And I'm like, I don't care. Like that's probably the church's fault. If you lead with that's probably the church's fault, they usually laugh and then you're in. Then they just start talking about all sorts of stuff. Mm -hmm. And I think once they see that you're not there to condemn them, but you're there to support them and help them and, and, you know, a lot of people have shame wrapped around that. You know, I know me growing up, um, that was a big thing. It was like, you need to be in church regardless every single Sunday. And I do, and I still go to church and I still, that's a huge part of my life. And I thank God for my upbringing, but there's a lot of shame wrapped around, Hey, you didn't go to church. Oh my gosh. That's the worst thing possible to not go to church on a Sunday. And a lot of people I think deal with that shame and they deal with that, uh, stigma that they've, from their own, you know, upbringing. I've had patients tell me because I, I totally agree with you, and I think it's, it is a deficit in the American religious tradition that that is a situation that is so common. But I had a client who I told I was like, "You're loved and accepted for who you are." I was like, "If you're made in the image of God, then you are who you are." And this client had never, ever in their entire life heard a clergy person I'm making the quote things because that's really good for podcasting um, but they never heard a clergy person tell them that before yeah. like that they were loved and accepted which seems great like that seems I was blessed to be raised in a church environment where we had all different shapes and sizes and people so for me I just took that for granted but yeah, no, it's tons of people feel that way. I think people automatically, especially when they think hospice, they think immediately just complete sadness and grief. And that can be the case. Right. There, there are times where it is very somber. It is very humbling. But a lot of times, even when I've visited hospice patients, 
we've had incredible laughs. We've had incredible times of joy. It is, and it doesn't always have to be like that. Tell me about a story or something where you've experienced that. Well, the first thing I'd say is this. Um, hospice is not about dying. It's about living. It's about the quality of that living. And as someone who's experienced the other side of it, that initial reaction to a life-limiting illness is terrifying. The family's terrified. The person's extremely terrified. But once we can get through that, and we know, hey, this is, this is what we're up against. Let's enjoy what we've got. People are into that, man. Like, people are super into that. And I think that that's, that's what we have to change the mentality of is hospice is not about dying. It's about quality of life. In fact, I think the numbers say that if you're on hospice, a lot of times you actually live longer than if you don't receive it. And so just being there for those people and giving them permission, hey, it is okay to laugh. This is absurd. I walked into, when I was a new chaplain one time, I walked into a guy's house and I said, hi, how are you doing? And he looked at me and he goes, well, I'm on hospice. And of course, I'm stunned because I'm embarrassed. And he just starts laughing. And it turns out that was the right thing to do. And we, that's kind of when I learned you have to laugh at it. Like you have to yeah. learn to just take all of it in. Yeah. But I mean, I think that's really what we're called to do is to help people understand that. Getting rid of that stigma about hospice. Because a lot of people don't want hospice. And they don't, they don't because of what they've heard and what they think they've heard and what they think they know. Well, you know, one of the things... There was a story I heard when I was visiting a church in the upstate. Um, A person was trying to, they were sick, they were very ill, and they were getting put on hospice. And when the nurse rattled off, like the medications that were because of their disease process that hospice would then cover, the person started like crying. And the nurse was put off. She thought she'd said something wrong. She thought she'd done something wrong. And she goes, are you okay? And the client literally looked at her and goes, I don't have to choose between my air conditioning this month and my medicine. And I I was flawed because I have privileged background. I didn't even think about that. But like to see people realize that, oh my gosh, I've paid into this system and that I can get something out of it without having to make... I can't imagine. I'm, we're in South Carolina, and the idea that it's October, or not October, excuse me, August, and you're like not paying for air conditioning because you're worried about your drugs. That's wow. Yeah, for sure. And hospice can relieve that. You know, oh, for sure. Almost every time. I'm sure if you're in Wisconsin, you feel the same way during the winter months. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I can't even imagine what that would be like and, and having to make that choice. And a lot of people do. And can bring a lot of relief in that. So that's amazing. What would you tell somebody who's uh, out there that maybe they've been in, you know, been clergy, maybe they've they've been, um, they're going to seminary. What would you tell them about, you know, the career of being a chaplain? I would, if you're a seminarian, you need CPE, clinical pastoral education. And um, I say that because I think the future of all faith traditions in the United States um, there's not going to be as many people coming to you. You're going to have to have sort of a missionary outreach. And a lot of pastors I see, they're not comfortable coming into environments with like Alzheimer's patients is a big one. 
a lot of people who are sick. And if you get those CPEs, if you get used to that environment, if you just like, and CPE is tough, don't get me wrong, but once you're used to being around people who are the ill and the marginalized, it transforms not just your hospice ministry, not just your chaplaincy ministry, but your, your ministry in general, because then you're just comfortable with people. And I think that's what I would tell people is if you're looking at chaplaincy, that's great. Um, I had a friend of mine at the Lutheran Seminary. She, that's, she wants to be a chaplain. I think she's got to spend two years in a parish before she can do that. But like get used to being around people. Get those clinical pastoral education, that kind of field work. It'll yeah. change your life. Right. And, you know, something you said a second ago, you know, and and this has got to, you, you've got to come from a different, um, with a different technique. You know, how do you work with somebody um, spiritually that has Alzheimer's or that has, you know, um, you know, dementia? All right. Companionship. I mean, I mean, it's nothing super smart. You just, you've got to be with them. And they'll tell you stories. I had a client, if I can, um, I would wear a rosary on my left wrist, and um, she, she was a Puerto Rican lady. On her, we'd cheat. I'm not going to lie to you. We have these little tablets that tell us what their religious persuasion is. And she had, her dementia was bad, but she would hold your hand and she'd feel your arm. And one day she felt my rosary, so I released it. And she took my rosary and she started feeling around the beads. And her faith tradition was listed as evangelical, Pentecostal. And um, I just watched her feel the beads. And anybody who's been in a Catholic parish at 7.30 a.m. on a Saturday morning knows the old ladies are out there praying the rosary. And so when her daughter came later that week, I said, hey, if I didn't know better, I think your mom was praying the rosary. And she looked at me and she goes, of course she was. I was like, oh, I I didn't... I thought her faith tradition, she goes, well, that's my faith tradition. And I told them that when they put her on service. But even dementia patients will teach you something. They'll show you something about who they really are. Other patients will talk about, we had another patient who would talk about her church fish fries. And it was just funny. Like you just, you could see that that part of the community was something important to her. And you just sort of remember that. But most, there are tales. You just have to be quiet enough to allow people to, give them to you. Yeah. Wow. That's an amazing story. I think too, music, um, really plays a part in this too. And not every chaplain sings, but I've been myself, I've been to assisted livings and, and skilled facilities and we've done music where we've sang hymns and somebody who is completely, um, they, they don't have much, um, they're not saying anything. They're kind of mute. They're not really attentive, but you start playing a hymn that they knew from when they were a kid or when they were an adult, they come alive and it's, it just brings something out of them that is so special. So I am one of the chaplains who cannot sing. I cannot carry a note if it had handlebars on it. Um, but we had a patient who was, um, we were kind of on her, her watch. She was close to the end, but I keep an iPad with me. And uh, she was a very high church Episcopalian. And so I played like a boys choir and you could, it was, Jamie, it was bizarre. Like you could watch her shoulders relax back and you could just watch her. And it's because it's the music she grew up with. They were singing the hymns that she knew. And so even without her speaking and even with her being weak, you could watch her body language change. Right. 
and her daughter. I heard the family was so, so grateful. Yeah, right. Something so simple. It doesn't take a lot. You, like you said, you you can't sing. That's okay. But you have an iPad, and we have technology that we can use to bring that moment back to them when they were a kid, when they were a teenager, whenever maybe they had given their heart to Christ, if they were a Christian, you know, is so special and, and such a special moment. So, Chris, thank you so much for being here and talking Thanks about Thanks for having me. Um, uh, and how needed it is and how important it is. So thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me, and I'll let's do it again sometime. Yeah, let's do it. Thanks. All right. It is March, and not only is it March Madness, But guess what March is? March is Social Worker Month. These incredible people that give their lives to serve our communities every single day in some of the most difficult situations that they step into and bring peace into chaos. And we want to celebrate them. LTC University is having a drive-in symposium for social workers where they can receive up to five CEU credits. And... You're going to get lunch that day for only $50. We are so excited about this. We need you to get registered. Get out there. You can go to ltchs.com forward slash LTCU and get out there. Get registered. We have all kinds of different topics that day. You're going to be hearing from five different communicators. We're going to have topics like homeless and the elderly, Medicaid for skilled nursing and hospice, finding your work-life zen, and so much more. And we want to have a special day just for you. So go out, get registered. You won't regret it. So it's going to be in Columbia at 1626 on Main. You don't want to miss it. Thanks so much for listening today, and we hope you have a fantastic day. Have a good one.